The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 37 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Rob Liefeld's back, eh? Then count me out. I'm Adam. Wondering who would win in a three-way battle royale between Ash from Pokemon, Ash from Evil Dead, and Ash from Event Comics, I'm Michael. And every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I'm Steven. Yes, indeed. We gave Steven a grand send-off last episode with, you know, our special guest there who filled the void perfectly. Turns out he was uh, possibly your clone. I don't know if it was perfectly. He was like the bizarro Steven because his vocabulary is different than, than <laughs> our Steven's. But otherwise, he was quite entertaining, yes. Well, he's Steven from the Bronx. I'm Steven from Queens. So there's going to be some difference there. But the Kyle Rayner <laughs> and, like, Robin and Batman Forever stuff really... Really, I was listening to the podcast like, wow, this guy and I, we'd be friends. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's wild. But the reason that we thought you were out, but we pulled you back in at least one more time here for the foreseeable future is, Steven, you got a movie project you are working on. And I think the listeners deserve a little bit of explanation why they won't be hearing your dulcet tones over the next few months. So, yes, this summer I'm uh, writing and directing a movie called UFO Club for In the Garage Productions. It's a 90s team comedy centered around a mysterious videotape that a teenage boy thinks will prove the existence of aliens. It's kind of in the vein of Can't Hardly Wait and X-Files Fight the Future, and it's set in the summer of 98, basically between the release of those two movies is where this movie is set. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're both going to be in it. Michael's producing it, and he's doing some second unit stuff as well, so it's a, it's a real Wizards podcast experience here. It, it is a very family collective, if you will, like even your children are in it at some point, right? My kids are in it. You know, my wife is doing some stuff for it. You know, every, everyone's going to be involved. Uh, it's, it's really exciting. I'm really excited to get started on it. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And so Michael will be with us a few more episodes that he himself has to get on set, has to be taking care of things. So bring it on some pretty fun guests. So just giving you a heads up right up top that we, we have some fun people doing our best to fill the void left by Michael and Steven, but I think you will enjoy them. Oh, and I, I should mention that Mike Allred is letting us use a Madman shirt in the movie. I contacted him and he, you know, obviously listens to the podcast, as we mentioned. He could not have been nice just one of the nicest interactions I've ever had with like anyone whose work I admire. It, it's, it's just really exciting to be able to include that. One more reason to love Mike Allred. His reputation as the nicest man in comics continues. He's lovable. <laughs> now, let's get on to the big news here for Wizard, because up top here, 
In the letter from the publisher, Garib Seamus announces that for the second year in a row, Wizard Magazine has won the GEM Award for Best Publication About Comics from Diamond Distributors. Garib also mentions that retailers have been demanding more Wizard half-issues, and they plan to deliver, starting with this one, which we'll get to a little bit later. But in more behind-the-scenes fun, Garib took the Wizard staff to Six Flags Great Adventure Theme Park in New Jersey. <laughs> Did you ever go there, Michael, during your time in college and all that? I have been there more times than I'd like to count. I've been there several times when I was in college. I've been on the Batman the Ride many times and, and the Batman Stunt Spectacular a few times as do well. Do they have Riddler's Revenge there too? <laughs> I, uh, do they have Riddler's Revenge? I don't remember. I, they have the Superman ride. Oh, yeah. Bat- Speaking of those roller coasters, Mark Wilkowski, who actually came up in a recent edition of The Wizard Files, he wrote a roller coaster for the first time in his life and then commented quote that was worse than puberty (laughs) (laughs) well i I will tell you that that batman ride when you're dangling like that and the superman ride where you're basically rotated face down and as if you're flying they are both nausea inducing rides every time i bring up a roller coaster and my wife mentions that superman the ride because there was some horrible tragic accident on one of those where a cable snapped and people's feet were cut off at the Ugh. ankles on one of those cars like well they uh. so she always brings that up i'm like dear I, I don't need to hear about this again <laughs> that was not a great adventure that was probably at a different six flags now before we go into this i want to talk about why i wanted to come back for this specific issue i have a very interesting connection to this issue so i'm, I'm just going to dive into this is that cool go for it so it was the summer of 1994 it was the middle of July, and I and I just looked at a calendar for 1994. It was probably July 15th or 16th. Um, my family was going on vacation to Sesame Place in Pennsylvania because my sister's 10 years younger than, than me and my brother, and so they wanted to give her, like, a fun time. I was walking around the mall with my brother and cousins. We walked into, like a, like, a kind of a game store in, like, this Philadelphia mall, and there on the shelf... I saw issue number 37 of Wizard, which wasn't due to hit the stands for another two weeks. Hmm. It was just there. They violated the street date in Pennsylvania, and and I saw the Hulk cover, and I just, like, I couldn't believe my eyes. I was, like, the kind of kid that bought Wizard, you know, on the first of every month whenever it came out. And here it was two weeks early. So I bought it, and I, I, like, went back to my family, and I was like, I got wizard two weeks early. I got wizard two weeks early <laughs> and no one cared at no all. One. <laughs> no, no one knew would... what I was talking about, why this is such a big deal that it, I, I received it two weeks early, but yeah, I got a copy of this two weeks before the street date. That is wild. Yeah. Those rebels in Pennsylvania, those Pennsylvania pirates out there, they're <laughs> not following any rules. That's gotta be against the law, right? <laughs> Well, I, I guess back there, there was not really a good way to inventory these things. Okay, give me your five bucks, kid, and get the heck out of here. <laughs> Leave it on the doorstep and get the hell out of here. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why I love this issue so much and why this cover is so memorable to me. That's awesome. I love it. But it's time to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. Ooh, 
So, yeah. So let's dive into this first letter. Uh, it's from Joe Massett of Van Nuys, California. First time I went to Van Nuys, I went to the set of the Office TV show, which they filmed in Van Nuys. Wait, in it's like, not in Scranton, Pennsylvania? <laughs> in like the worst neighborhood in Van Nuys you could imagine. And there it was. You can see Dunder Mifflin. But anyway. You're ruining so, the magic for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the letter goes, Dear Wizard, Todd McFarlane's ego column about what a sweet guy his friend Rob Liefeld is and how all of us bullies who pick on him should just stop sure gave me a case of the warm fuzzies all right. So Rob Liefeld is a wide-eyed, reckless, but charming and industrious care bear of a dude. <laughs> eh, Todd? So what? Does this mean I have no right to laugh when I see him draw the same three facial expressions panel after panel, or when I catch him strategically placing hard-to-draw body parts at a frame or behind another one of those ankle-height hills that always seem to pop up in front of his characters? Heck no! I don't care if Rob Liefeld is Mother Teresa in a backward hat. Oh, boy. <laughs> He's still responsible for some of the most unintentionally side-splitting blatantly derivative, half-baked, and flat, screaming, stupid comic books of the past decade. That wow. alone gives me the right to make jokes about his books and give comic pros the right to call him to task for his obvious art steals and contribution to the lowering of the brow of this art form. Yeesh. Since when does good intent give you immunity from ridicule? An artist's work speaks for itself. You can't expect people to, not to talk back. Until Rob Liefeld improves his work, I will remain convinced that if extreme books were movies, they'd have the shadows of a guy and two robots in the lower right-hand corner. From Joe Massett. <laughs> wow, he thinks that Rob Liefeld books belong on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Wizard says, good analogy. It is only recently that I have become a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Pretty groovy show. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so that's rough. And if you think that's the last you've heard of Rob Liefeld in this issue, ooh, you better watch out. You know, a few episodes back, we had a drinking game for every time we made fun of him. Just the sheer mention of Rob Liefeld in this issue prevented us from even suggesting that any sort of drinking game associated with him because it would be deadly. Where was I? <laughs> Where was this drinking game? <laughs> you participated. <laughs> you blacked I mean out. I must have blacked out. I have no <laughs> recollection of this at all. <laughs> this conversation is gone. Wow. I'm getting old. It's also interesting to read in, you know, a letter where Mystery Science Theater was a new show that people were discovering. Yes. Yes. That's kind of cool. So the next letter is from Jason Norica of Nanticoke, Pennsylvania. Okay. A lot of Pennsylvania in this episode already. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're knee-deep in PA. <laughs> so he asks, Dear Wizard, if Rogue touched a tree or a rabbit, would she start to grow leaves out of her fingers or start to grow fur or something like that? Okay. Wizard says, yeah, and if she touched a Ginsu knife, could she slice through leather, tin cans, and frozen vegetables and still go through this ripe tomato like a hot knife through butter? But wait, don't answer yet. <laughs> What? I don't understand. That is I a don't... throwback to the Ginsu yeah. Knife infomercials and Ron Popeil and all yes. that. Yeah, those were good commercials. I enjoyed them. So what would happen if Rogue did that? I'd she touched a tree? 
Nothing. Nothing. It, 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 it has to do with, you know, actually touching it mainly another mutant, you know, but, okay. I mean, I, I, but I mean, like taking their powers. But yeah, obviously, you know, to her boyfriend and all that, she sucked out his life energy and essence yeah. into her brain and stuff. So, but it's it's person to person contact, not object to person contact. I don't know about a bunny rabbit, though. I mean, you know, what would she just get like really peckish for carrots? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> She'd be hopping like crazy. I guess so. But I mean, she's touched Wolverine. She didn't get adamantium claws. She just got his, you know, invulnerability and his grumpiness and his attitude, right? Yeah, it's not like the physical attributes. It's more like, in the, in the case of a mutant, yeah, like what their mutant power is, not if they have armor on or enhancements, you know. Interesting. So, building off this rogue thing, we have Bill Dorfschmidt from New Milford, Connecticut. So it says... Dear Wizard, why doesn't Forge develop a power-restraining armband for Rogue, much like the collars almost every X-Men villain has lying around? She could turn on and off her mutant power whenever she wanted to and lead a normal life. Remember, most of her cool powers, like flight, strength, and invulnerability, are not mutant powers, but ones she stole from Miss Marvel. It's such an easy solution, I'm surprised the writers haven't already thought of it. And Wizard says, great idea, it probably has been thought of, but it would make her much less of an interesting character. Still, I like it. Okay. And Agreed. So this rogue letter train does not stop here. The next letter is from Matt Velthoen of San Marcos, California. He says, Dear Wizarders, if Rogue touched herself, what would happen? <laughs> uh, Wizard says, I want you all to know that it takes every ounce of self-restraint I have not to answer this one. Oh, damage control! That that joke probably went over my head as a kid. Yeah, it, it, yeah, <laughs> me too. I would have been like, huh? What do you mean? Well, she's just picking her nose. What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I gotta say, guys, though, Rogue's gotta be a big fan of the band The Davidals. Anybody? <laughs> Well, with that, uh, where do we go from here? Let's take a dive into Wizard News. For the first time in a long time, Image Comics gets the front page as they announce X Month. The X is meant to convey the concept of a crossover because an X is made of crossed lines, I guess. Uh, right? Cool. Yeah, whatever. But it's not really a crossover event. Instead, each image founder will take over the art and writing chores of another book for one issue. So that means Rob Liefeld's issue will come out about six months later. So, okay. <laughs> um, at the time of this issue, the creative teams for each book are still unknown. 
Dun, dun, dun. Rob Liefeld did an entire episode of his podcast discussing this gimmick, revealing that the original intention was that the readers wouldn't know who did which book until they hit the stands, but retailers didn't want to underorder a potentially hot book. So Image released the credits list ahead of time. Internally at Image, Nobody wanted Jim Valentino to draw their book because they all thought he was an inferior artist. Wow, that is some throwing some shade. Holy cow. To avoid problems, Rob offered to do Shadowhawk. Valentino took Youngblood. Jim Lee called Savage Dragon. Eric Larson claimed Wildcats. Mark Silvestri snapped up Spawn. And Todd was left with Cyberforce. Check out The Secret Origin of Image X Month, an episode of the Observations, for a full story. And Adam will be doing a quick review of all these books in the next mini episode. You're really going to read all of these books? Yes, I've got them. I've read through them. A little tease here. I will tell you that the guy nobody wanted doing their books really created the most entertaining of all of them. So we we will get into why. But yeah, Valentino is definitely the superstar of this one. And hey, Rob, we're throwing people your way. Don't say we never did nothing for (laughs) you. Sure. Speaking of image, it's announced that Mark Silvestri is moving his top cow studios offices away from Jim Lee's homage studios in San Diego to set up a new studio in Los Angeles. We are assured that this is just a change to help grow his operations and not the result of any trouble between Silvestri and Lee or any other image creators. Hmm. Don't read into it. It is what it is. <laughs> curiouser and curiouser I become. Marvel announces that they are launching a theme restaurant chain called Marvel Mania, where servers will be dressed as Marvel characters. I guess yes. this makes sense because wasn't this like the time of Planet Hollywood taking off and, and a couple other like theme-based restaurants like that absolutely the all-star cafe was a big one espn restaurant new york city was a big one at this time and then there was like you know they they were all trying to like get onto the hard rock cafe sort of thing Mm -hmm. and and play on that trope yeah i remember this the intention was to have a restaurant in every major u.s city much like planet hollywood but ultimately the very few that were actually built could only be found in like adjacent to Universal Studios theme parks where costumed Marvel characters continue to appear to this day at Islands of Adventure and the Marvel theme park in Orlando. And Adam actually went to a Marvel Mania restaurant in the 90s. What was that like, dude? I'm going to tell you all about it, but I'm actually going to build the suspense because I know that Steven this week, we were talking on the Twitter, (laughs) as you do, and uh, he himself was talking about his love of going to Planet Hollywood. So first, tell people about the planet hollywood experience and then i will share how it compared when i went to marvel mania so planet hollywood was 
amazing. I was a kid who loved movies and loved movie memorabilia. And to just be able to go to the restaurant and be surrounded by movie memorabilia was bananas. It was really cool. The first time I went, my parents took me and my brother and my sister. I remember most vividly the naked Sylvester Stallone from Demolition Man. Yes, I was going to point that out too. And they had to cover his, you know, genitals with like a black cloth. Uh, That's the thing I remember the most. Then uh, in high school, my friends and I, we would go to the city for this like little Italy trip because we all took Italian as a language. And then you were just free to roam around the city. And we would always end up at Planet Hollywood. And I remember getting a gremlin drink. Like it was it was not an alcoholic drink because I was like 14 or 15. But it was like this green slushy that almost looked like when the gremlin gets close to the blender in the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then my brother's 16th birthday, we went to Planet Hollywood, Orlando, because we happened to be there, you know, on a Disney World trip. So, yeah, I I always loved Planet Hollywood. It was a ton of fun. I liked Planet Hollywood, too. I I had been to the Times Square one a handful of times. It was always like two hours to get into the place before you could even get a table. And I was sitting online like will i see bruce willis will he be there will i see bruce willis <laughs> one of your fun fact though with regard sure. to universal studios and in particular with islands of adventure and the marvel park right so apparently there's some sort of you know contract or agreement between universal and disney and the marvel studios that marvel characters cannot appear in a theme park east of the mississippi that's why there's no marvel theme park in disney orlando because universal owns the rights east of the mississippi yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I actually have a friend, you know, because I used to be a costumed character at Disneyland, and I have a friend who still works there. He's like, yeah, it's, it's just so confusing to figure out, like, who you're working for, and what you're allowed to do, and all these things. But yeah, and I, and I will just say, as far as Planet Hollywood goes, like, I definitely went several times. They built one just, like, 15 minutes from my house in Costa Mesa, California, by South Coast Plaza. Oh, no way. Yeah, and so I, I got to go there a lot, and I remember, first time we went as we were driving up there was a batmobile out front there was somebody in the 89 costume and i was like dad batman's over there let's get over there real quick because because we were going there anyway right but by the time we got around the parking lot he had left like the batmobile was gone he was gone and i was like no I'm so bummed. But it was also like super mysterious and in character, right? Like Batman disappears, got called into action. And I had a Planet Hollywood shirt I wore all the time. I have lots of pictures of me in that shirt. (laughs) But yeah, so when Marvel Mania came up, though, so this is when I was in high school, and I was so excited when I found out it was open, go to Universal Studios. All my friends were a couple years older, so they could drive me. And so we went there, and I had just gotten my braces on. And so my mouth was so sore. I had to order a mutant minestrone soup because that's the only thing I could eat. I couldn't chew anything. So that was my get off the menu. And I remember going in there and looking and it's like, yeah, they have, I mean, it was set up exactly like Planet Hollywood with all these like fake replica props from comics and things like that in cases. And then, yeah, they had the costume characters walking around. Like if anybody's ever been to a Disney restaurant, you know, in Florida Mm -hmm. or Goofy's Kitchen in California, those types of things. And so Captain America came to our table and he was just doing a stand-up routine. Like he was so 
funny. And he was like, so where are you guys from? We're like, oh, we're from, we're from Irvine. We're down in Orange County. He's like, ah, behind the orange curtain. <laughs> you know, like he was, he was so good. So anyway, so while we're there the whole time, like I'm a super fanboy, right? The rest of my friends did not care about comics. They were there for me. They were just being super cool. And so then as we left, Spider-Man had been walking around, but I was, look, I'm like, I'm like 15, but he was still my hero. And I was too embarrassed to ask him for an autograph. So they had these really cool napkins that had like Spider-Man's head on it and stuff. And I was just taking that as a souvenir. But then my friends are like, no, no, you have to get an autograph. Like we came here for you. So they walked back in and I waited in the lobby while they got Spider-Man's autograph for me on the napkin. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's my friends would have not gone with me to this. But they're no. like, no, <laughs> dork, you're going by yourself. We're going to the ESPN restaurant instead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, like that bas- one. It's like, I like basketball too, but I like Marvel. I like- Sorry, I'm having an existential moment there. <laughs> yeah, you're going, down, you're going down a little rabbit hole there. It got dark for a minute, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, back on track. As a follow-up to our 90s Super Cinema episode covering the Rocketeer movie, it's reported that Dave Stevens was working on a third issue of the Rocketeer that was nearly completed but had a flood in his studio when water pipes burst. So the release date is now set for 1995. Wow. Interesting. Oof. Sucks. Another follow-up to the story of Silver Age comics artists auctioning off redrawn covers of classic Marvel comics. The art stu- uh, sold in amounts ranging from thirty-five hundred to thirteen thousand dollars a piece. An auction was also held for Golden Age comics, where Action Comics number one sold for forty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. And Detective Comics 27 sold for $42,500, while Amazing Spider-Man number one sold for $16,000. It's funny thinking at this, like, Action Comics number one. What did, like, Nicolas Cage bought it for, like, a million or something like that, right? Like a really I know. Big... What a bargain, right? Yeah. yeah. Was... It was, like, 1.5 million or something like that yeah. was his. But now it goes for over well over $2 million. Yeah, easily. And Detective 27 goes for quite a bit as well. So I'm, I'm shocked to see... 47,000 that's that guy got lucky i mean if we could just go back in time and get and buy them even in the 90s we would have made a killer profit on yeah. those dude we, we need a delorean and that like <laughs> you know the almanac that he got in 2015 that had all the winnings of everything we could have cashed in big it'd been great <laughs> <laughs> what say it what are you gonna say i was just gonna say you know if we could just go to the universal studios uh tour and just get the guy that plays doc brown who walks around maybe he knows something that we don't <laughs> talking up these costume characters yeah seriously in sad news dc comics editor of creative services neil posner died of aids related illness in june having been with dc since 1981 this was especially tragic because he was responsible for hiring many of the hot talents in the industry at this time. As reported back in Fate Zero, Neil discovered talents like Phil Jimenez, Howard Porter, Mike Waringo, Daryl Banks, and Jim Ballant, and many, many more. Wow, it's crazy. It's- so Stephen, Neil Posner was the reason you got Kyle Rayner drawn by Daryl Banks. That's got to be huge. I was just I was just thinking that exact thing. What a loss. 
the DuPont company brought legal action against an independent comics publisher, Comic Zone Productions, who were publishing a series called Lycra Woman and Spandex Girl. Apparently, DuPont owned the trademark of Lycra Fabric. Comic Zone was ordered to destroy all copies of the comic and renamed the title Spandex Tights, with the main character now being known as Spandex Girl and Flex Woman. <laughs> so apparently Spandex, nobody owns the copyright on that, but Lycra, DuPont, was holding tight to that, literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, Rob Liefeld proposed to his girlfriend, Joy Beth Creel, in the pages of Young Blood number six, and she said, Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she said yes. They are still married to this day, so whatever we think about him in the comics world, you gotta give the guy props for making a marriage work for almost 30 years. Way to go, Rob. It's interesting. You know, I, I was talking to my wife. I was like, dear, how would you feel if I had proposed to you, you know, at a baseball game? Obviously, I wouldn't have done that. Like, I was just trying to think, like, what if I took you to a Kiss concert and I somehow got Paul Stanley to be like, hey, we got a guy out there. He's in love. What do you say, baby? You want to marry him? That, that would not have gone over well. You sounded more like Steven Tyler there for a second. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Listen, you know, props to him, but, like, did issue six come out on time that she wasn't, like, waiting uh, two years for it to come out? <laughs> well, remember, we're about to talk about this, but he was on hiatus for a very long time preparing issue six, so he had plenty of time to work it in there. Well, there you go. So we'll give you some of the details at our table of contents. Now... Here we go. Not only was this a, a very special issue for Steven, but this is a milestone for Wizard Magazine in the September 1994 cover date, which features an unprecedented three different covers. The newsstand edition that Steven found two weeks early was a mm -hmm. hunky-looking Hulk on the cover that is another Fleer Flare art piece, much like the previous one with uh, Wolverine we had recently. So they just kind of reused a comic panel that was then colored with Fleer Flare technology and then slapped on the cover of Wizard Magazine. But the two direct market variant covers each have a story of their own. So Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, you might recall, provided the Spider-Man cover for issue number 36. But when they delivered the art to the Wizard offices, the pair announced that they were starting event comics with Ash as their flagship hero. So Quesada and Palmiotti reportedly pushed hard to get a cover to debut Ash and Kid Death, huh? who are a couple of characters whose books didn't even come out yet at this point. And you'd think Wizard would have learned their lesson with doing something like that with the Wetworks fiasco. Not only that, Quesada and Palmiotti created a vertical cover design. So you literally had to turn the magazine on a horizontal, you know, landscape and then drop out the flap to get the full image. Wow, just like innovation upon innovation. Uh, <laughs> an unreleased character getting the cover and then a, a flip cover and all this stuff. So that being the case then, given that strong arming by event comics, it seemed, I think we can't give Rob Liefeld too much crap for also getting two covers in a row as well. But Wizard used some very specific words to describe the experience of 
coordinating this with Rob. So here's what they had to say. Back-to-back covers featuring the same characters, a stunt that had never been pulled off until Rob Liefeld made it happen. Wizard number 36 featured his Youngblood characters, as did this issue's cover with Bad Rock, Die Hard, and Troll. This marks the seventh time Liefeld's image characters would appear on our covers. The others were issue 10, 16, 21, 23, 35, and 36, all of which occurred in three years' time. It's a testament to Liefeld's aggressive promotion of his comics, something which was instrumental in making him one of the most successful comic book personalities of the early to mid-1990s. But that phrase of his aggressive promotion, not the popularity of his books, not the artistic impact of his books, but the aggressive promotion. Okay, so Rob obviously knew how to push the right buttons. So I teased last episode that I had some theories as to why Rob got this special treatment. So you guys tell me what you think about this. The first is, over these last few issues, as we've said here, many Rob characters, and he has been paying for multi-page ads for Youngblood number six, like the blood is back and all this kind of stuff it's saying in there. And they were in the front of the magazine, which that ain't a cheap spot to be in, I'm sure. So just from a financial perspective, he had a major in. I mean, he is paying the bills for Wizard. You know, you can kind of, you know, twist their arm a little bit there. But also, if you'll remember way back in issue 10, when Liefeld provided that controversial cable and shaft mashup cover, the sales on that issue saved Wizard from going out of business. So I'm kind of willing to bet they wanted to return the favor because this guide to comics was still going strong 27 issues later, thanks to Rob's contribution. So what what do you you guys think about that? Seem likely? Um, Yeah. I mean, here's my question. Clearly, they had a nice little thing going there for a little while. They were kind of helping each other out. Where did it go wrong? Well, it seems to me like, for what I hear on Rob's podcast, it's he liked Garib. Almost okay. everybody liked Garib. But Pat McCallum, who was really the guy putting the magazine together, mm-hmm. he seemed to be the one along with the rest of the crew kind of encouraging the Liefeld bashing. And so I think it was just, it just built up and built up and built up. But specifically, he usually cites the Heroes Reborn era, okay. that they were misrepresenting all this stuff. And so that's where he got really mad. Because that is when I remember the super negative Rob Liefeld stuff was going on. I mean, in Wizard's defense, as soon as you saw that picture of Captain America, you were just thinking, what the hell is this? (laughs) This sucks. So it's not like Wizard, they're responsible for the fact that everybody hated his design of Captain America. Yeah. It just didn't work. And they portrayed it honestly. Right. Yeah, well, but that being the case, I mean, whatever Wizard was saying, he was still making so much money. There's this contingent, this silent majority, who I don't know who they are, but they were buying his books and buying, buying, buying. So, I mean, he definitely was popular with a certain section of the audience. I just don't think it was the section of the comics reading public who were more versed. Like the letter that was read earlier, that guy knew, yeah, he swiped from here, he swiped from there, you know, like it's just just kind of the idea of, yeah, it's it's all derivative. But if you're a new kid coming into the comics world, all you know is that looks cool. I'm going to buy that. He's almost like the Joe Rogan of (laughs) comic books. Rogan is very powerful in the podcast world. We do not want to make him mad. <laughs> Try to get us a po- another podcast feud? I don't care. To me, he'll always just be the least funny character on news radio, so I don't really care. I don't know why anyone would, th- would, th- would like see Rob Liefeld's art and be like, 
is my guy. This is the guy I'm going to follow. And same thing with Joe Rogan. I don't know why anyone would see that guy and be like, this is the podcast I'm going to listen to. This is the guy for me. You know, you know now we're really going to go down a rabbit hole here. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys won't be on for a while, so we got to get it out now. Yeah, like, I- I'm going to say it. I don't like Howard Stern, period. I, oh. I, I think his his shtick is boring and it, he's unfunny and there's occasionally times that, he, that, that he's kind of funny and i'm like all right yeah he's he's the king of all media sure i loved the movie private parts i yeah, love yeah, yeah. that movie but like of the last let's say 10 years i don't find him interesting anymore for sure it feels like festivus around here the airing of grievances right now yeah. Well, Stern may not have it anymore. I don't know. Rob still seems to be doing fine uh, in this day and age. But if you thought we were done with Liefeld, we are just getting started because we have an interview with Rob called The Blood Is Back, an interview about his return to comics after what is reported to be an eight-month hiatus. And I couldn't believe it was that long because there's been so much news from Liefeld lately in the books. But Rob did announce I had to go back and find it in issue 26. Six, which was October 1993, that he was leaving the plotting and drawing of comics at Extreme to kind of get his act together. And here we are almost a year later with coverage of his first personal comics work since then. So his company was still producing. He had all these protégés, the people that were doing the work for him. But this is the first time he was involved and they're celebrating here, right? Or at least he wants us to. And uh, in fact, I wrote a song about it to commemorate the occasion. Like to hear it? No. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> please don't. No. Well, no. you're going to get it, baby. Here we go. Hey, bitch comics fans. You know, there's one guy who started it all, and we're dedicating this song to him. Oh, yeah. Rob Liefeld's drawing, baby, to the extreme. Bloodstrike Brigade and Profit Then there's Supreme Small feet and pouches Tough white head dudes Rob Dykes and Macho Baby All Root and Crew Well he makes a million comics And not once a dud That rockin' chapter part Baby, don't anticipate. Say you're disappointed. Well, here's what he said I've never wanted to draw that death made red. Life was on hiatus, his name was Mud. But now his issue six Young 
Ah, what do you think, guys? Like those lyrics, huh? It was very specific and very well done. <laughs> it's uh, it, it it's a song. <laughs> <laughs> you probably wouldn't have liked the original song by Kiss. That is a parody of Love Gun by Kiss, for those who are not Kiss fans or classic rock fans. So anyway, I, I want to just start <laughs> off by, by talking about this particular article, because... So Liefeld is like featured snuggling up against this like foam rubber bad rock. Is that? Yeah, you got it. I got yeah. it right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's rubbing <laughs> off on you, Michael, after all these episodes. And, I'm very proud of you. And, and, and bad rock to me in this giant foam rubber, whatever, he's like a gray Hulk ninja turtle. That's what he kind of looks like. Yeah. I think that's the costume that went around the conventions. He must just uh, keep it in his office and yeah. <laughs> you he, he, we- he wears it with his fiance at the time. <laughs> Jeez. And so like in this same issue, they're selling a bad rock mask, right? I, th- I think I saw an ad for a bad rock mask. Who was that into bad rock that they're buying this like 50 or $60 1994 money mask? Again, a lot of our listeners were 13-year-old kids that were high on Rob Liefeld at this time. So if somebody had the mask, you got to tell us, did you take it that far? Did Rob convince you not to buy just comics, but a, a rubber mask to impress 0.5% of your friends? <laughs> but but again, a very specific thing you said there, 13 or 14-year-olds, not that many 13 or 14-year-olds had a $50 check that they could write because you couldn't just like go online and order it back then. So you had to have somebody pay for that and mail, you know, mail in a check or whatever or a money order or something, right? How do you buy yeah. something? Hey, birthdays come once a year. That's when you cash in and get your young blood mask. But here's the thing, though. So we're saying that it appealed to the younger audience who didn't know much about comics. That's why they were all excited about these violent images. But Rob says in this interview that now... He has totally reimagined Youngblood, where it was originally a comic with nothing but action. Now it is a character-based book, because he says, quote, I'm going to build up to the action this time. Before my hiatus, I remember all I wanted to do was draw action, because I had been really good at drawing it. I had been sacrificing all the meat. Now I know my fans expect meat on these bones. So, put the meat, the characters, it's what he's going to focus on, okay? <laughs> and uh, responding to his critics, Rob says, quote, I've never really thought of myself as a great artist. I think of myself as a creative storyteller. He goes on to say, I'll put Jack Kirby up against Neil Adams any day of the week, and I'll acknowledge that Neil drew much more beautifully than Jack, but Jack could just tell one hell of a story. Now, this is the thing, like, storytelling, I would say, based on the issues we've actually read on this show, was not your story suit rob like he says he's all about panel layout and page design and he feels like he keeps the images moving that's what he's always saying that's his strength but yeah like uh, visual storytelling i think is what you're pointing at it's definitely not concepts or conveying emotion or any of those things uh yeah speaking of neil adams by the way so he just turned 80 the other day wow. actually and he was hospitalized for a month because he had uh, i think sepsis he just came back from being in the hospital he almost died right before his 80th birthday and he was just on facebook yesterday talking about it and 
Well, he's, he's always on Instagram live. Like he yeah. goes on live a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He auctions off a lot of his stuff. He does art on, on Facebook live and Instagram live all the time. And he, he just got back and he's like, I just turned 80 and I got out of the hospital on my 80th birthday. And I got all these messages from people. And he was like blown away that people cared about him. He's like, I'm 80 years old. And you know, I didn't think some people cared about me anymore. And he was really touched. So it was really nice. So. Yeah. Way to go. Hanging in there, Neil. And actually Rob actually goes on to say that Neil Adams, he had talked to him and Neil felt like he should have taken greater advantage of his status as a hot artist but he was really like trying to break the mold and go against the machine and all this stuff back in the day and rob says specifically he's like neil tells me like people come to conventions and nobody comes to his table because the young kids don't know who he is anymore because he didn't capitalize on it he didn't keep it going and his continuity comics aren't selling unfortunately and so it's like it's kind of interesting but speaking of which uh the state of the industry rob rather ham-fistedly tries to sympathize with a comic store owner saying quote two and a half years ago i think there were 200 comics published a month now there's something like 900 if i was a retailer now i'd have a gun to my head every time i had to order my books ah damage control damage control damage control damage control rob watch the words watch the words wow yeah a little harsh <laughs> <laughs> The brash young Rob Liefeld. Next up, though, the other pair who provided the cover for this issue, Joe and Jimmy's Excellent Adventures, is an interview with Casada and Paul Biotti about their Event Comics imprint and their Ash Comics character. Casada mentions that everybody thinks of them as this great team, but aside from doing a lot of covers together, the only actual comics work they produced together was Exo Manowar number zero and three issues of Ninjak before Casada quit the book, which he still refuses to comment on by the way he won't tell his side which is really interesting their main reason they say for starting their own company was to have fun doing comics which the pair admit has always been their philosophy that they have turned down many lucrative projects they just weren't interested in a plus they mentioned that nowadays the fans follow artists so it's the best time for them to capitalize on that now the first original characters they came up with were on this cover here kid death and fluffy major contrast to ash because they're like super cartoon they look like they would be like on the side of a train car as some sort of graffiti you know like somebody's tagging kid death and fluffy <laughs> But Ash is still their number one priority, so they, they give the origin. They say, Paul Biotti's brother came up with the name. Paul Biotti suggested the firefighter alter ego, and Quesada created the unique design and look of the character with these giant gauntlets and these flame energies that go around him. Plus, they went and hung out with real firefighters for research, so the book is going to focus on realism, they say, with a mix of superheroics, and be less violent than most 90s comic books. Quesada states, quote, any severed heads or limbs will be severed off panel <laughs> <laughs> the duo who have never written a comic say they can't write anything they haven't experienced but as paul Viotti puts it quote i could definitely write about a guy from brooklyn who gets stuck on the d trade for four hours loses his mind and takes hostages i've done that uh-huh <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah i was you like can't really? make that joke anymore at all no In regards to the quality of the books, they joke, quote, if we're going to do a crappy issue, we promise we'll try to solicit it that way in advance. <laughs> 
funny guys. And this is the one thing I wanted to point out real quick is I think that is the major difference between remember like Joe Casada like he gets crap, you know, for being editor-in-chief of Marvel, but, like, as an artist, it was just like, nope, people like Joe Quesada. Rob Liefeld, I think what it is, is he is steeped in comic books, and he takes them so seriously that he is comic book guy. He is the stereotype. He's the nerdy guy who obsesses and gets upset over fake stuff. I mean, not to say we don't, we love it, but, like, Joe Quesada was in a band. He, like, he had a lot of other things, like, fine art that he did. Like, he was just a cool guy who also appreciated comics and happened to fall into the industry and i think that is kind of where like the difference is in perception and how people are going to get on your case if you're like the guy who's like oh i I know all the greats i'm going to be one of them and all that kind of stuff to the guy who's just like it's a cool thing to do i'm pretty good at it (laughs) (laughs) we've talked a lot about liefeld today huh oh my god ad nauseum yeah it's it's gonna get a little less as we go but it's not over yet uh (laughs) Casada <laughs> and Paul Viotti, for you guys, do you have any favorite works or any particular projects that always stand out when you hear those names? I, I honestly, though I don't like Exo Manowar, that cover that Casada did that I, uh, for issue zero, I think, I really, really like that cover a lot. That was really cool. And you got me a pin of that cover. I did, yes, that is true. It's awesome. Yeah, right. you know. No, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. No, I have nothing to say about that. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of nothing to say, next up is David and Goliath, which is an interview with Hulk writer Peter David and editor Bobby Chase, where literally nothing is revealed about the rumors of a dark and gritty new direction for the Hulk. Uh, Patrick Daniel O'Neill starts the article stating that, quote, the people who know aren't talking, at least not in a straightforward fashion. And I will just say right here, it is a waste of five pages in this magazine, other than to tell us that there's a new artist on the book. He's a British guy named Liam Sharp, who is taking over for Gary Frank. So Liam Sharp had done a Death's Head 2, which was a Marvel UK comic, and some X-Men fill-in issues that he came to New York, asked if he could be the new Hulk artist, and Bobby Chase said, yes. (laughs) And to take Gary Frank's job, Gary Frank, he's one of my favorite favorites to lose his job to some random guys that says a lot i'm glad that we got a hulk article because we got a cool hulk cover i don't care who did the art i just think it was a cool cover. (laughs) The, the, the question i have about this article though the first picture you see of hulk he's got a giant grenade launcher and like a bandolier of grenades and i'm like why does hulk need a grenade launcher he is the grenade launcher like what why does he need weapons? I mean, he's, he's in full-on Schwarzenegger mode. That's what this is. This is Commando Hulk. The 90s were a hard time, man. If Hulk needs a, a rocket launcher, he <laughs> got problems. This is when, like, they were kind of doing, you know, the... He was almost like a Fabio Hulk. Oh, <laughs> he was, yeah. like, this male model, smart, super muscular, like he could have been in, like, uh, Vince McMahon's World Bodybuilding Federation Hulk. Yes. It was a weird time. By the way, Steven, I have an issue of WBF Magazine. You want oh, it? Oh, my God. No. Please, don't send me that. <laughs> Why do you have that? <laughs> I came across it in a thrift store. I'm like, I can't leave this here. It must be preserved. You could, and you should have. <laughs> Speaking of those muscular brutes, a new mythology is a look at Bart Sears' philosophy on starting his new comics company, Ominous Press. The brute and babe characters are given the names Male and Oro, <laughs> and are destined to, quote, merge. But the villain of the story wants to merge with Oro also. It sounds like a vague, generic, like, intergalactic story, uh, about which Bart Sears states, quote, What I'm doing isn't really comics, it's heroic 
sagas. Hmm. Very deep. Sears claims to have nine different books planned for his universe, one of which is called Pharos and was introduced in the Creator's Universe card set that we mocked many issues back. Uh, other titles like Archon the Giant Killer, Intrepid, Armageddon, Tyrus, Night Beast. Oh, yes. They all sound forgettable. And although Insidious is one of his comics that's about a villain, I don't think it inspired the Blumhouse film series. Almost certain about that. But Bart seems more focused on innovation in format by publishing eight-page double-sided comics on heavy stock paper without staples. Quote, each page is called a tablet and is slipped into a plastic sleeve in a reusable slipcase. So how would you feel about just getting loose pages to read as a comic, guys? Yeah. what i call like homework when you get like you know <laughs> dittos handed by your teacher that's what the loose pages are to me and that's Great. not a comic it's not a comic that's what he's saying it's not comics it's heroic sagas that's how you that's how you ship a heroic saga so I, I, I need a stapler now and a hole puncher to put the oh pieces. you ruined it no <laughs> How could you do that? <laughs> Much more interesting to me was the story of how Sears attended the Joe Kubert Art School in the 80s. He got his first professional work at Marvel on Sectars, which was based on the Insectoid 80s action figures, if anybody remembers those. I actually have that comic that he drew. I'm like, whoa. Those toys were awesome, by the way. Can I just plug oh, those yes. toys? They were so cool. They were like half puppets, half toys, and you would slip your hand into like a glove, and that would be like the bug's arms. Yeah. It's cool. I I mean, they had like a giant playset for it. It was like like five times larger than uh, Castle Grayskull. It was just like because the figures were bigger than Masters yeah. of the Universe. Yeah, I never had the playset. My brother and I had the good guy and the bad guy. That's all we had. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna look that up now. <laughs> I, I have no knowledge expensive. of this. No knowledge of this. None. But what you might remember, Michael, is that Bart Sears continued working in toys for Hasbro, and he designed all the cops and crooks characters. Do you remember those guys? I do remember cops and crooks. Yes. Yeah. So all the card art like that was his art plus like he helped design them he created several gi joes and just for steven many of the world wrestling federation characters for the hasbro line yes one of the greatest toy lines of all time it is a good toy line and i'm still I trying to recollect my my all like the whole series and he even did preliminary drawings on the Toy Biz X-Men line, too. I know specifically the second Apocalypse figure, which is one of my favorites. He designed that. And actually, the Cops line is what got him his gig at DC that led to his run on Justice League Europe, which was uh, also, if you guys will recall, last episode, Steven Sadak said that was his first comic ever. It was Justice League Europe number 50. <laughs> <laughs> so Bart Sears got him started. Anyway, then Sears moved on to Valiant to do Turok, but was let go for not meeting deadlines, he reveals. And then he says he also got fired off the Violator book by Todd McFarlane because Bart thought there wasn't a deadline. Like he said, basically, <laughs> I keep telling these publishers I don't work on deadlines and they hire me and then they fire me. <laughs> like. So it sounds like he was living in a little bit of a fantasy world. It's like, oh yeah, whatever you get to it, Bart. Oh my god. Finally, Sears reflects on how doing Brutes and Babes in Wizard over the last years has made him improve as an artist, and Wizard announces that they are collecting his past columns into a How to Draw Comics instructional book. So there you go. Now, the last article this month, I'm very curious to find out if you guys have any connection here, is with revered fantasy artist Frank Frazetta. 
about getting back into the world of comics through Verotic, which is an indie imprint owned by Glenn Danzig, formerly of the Misfits, and went on to his famous solo career, the man who believed he could turn into a werewolf. The man who believed he could get into a fight and win, but was wrong, if you've ever seen that video. No. Uh, <laughs> it's actually worth mentioning that Danzig stole the horned skull on the cover of his first solo album from an issue of Marvel's Crystar the Crystal Warrior comic, which was also a toy line tie-in book. Danzig, a oh man, Michael's friend Joe, who's been on the show back in the day, big Misfits fan, so he knows what I'm talking about. He may be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Frazetta flat out says he doesn't actually want to do comics. Nobody wants to be doing comics at this time, but they're doing comics, because that's where the money is. Simon Bisley, who we've talked about doing a lot of like Lobo art and Judge Dredd and things, he's going to be the artist. And then Frazetta says maybe he'll do some covers or just do some consulting, because the comics are based on very popular fantasy paintings that he sold like so many prints of, and now they're expanding it into a world. But then in a sidebar, Wizard reveals that Frazetta actually will be creating new characters for the comics. So they got the update. And then it goes a little bit into his history, just saying that Frazetta was an art prodigy who did comics in the 40s as like a teenager before graduating to providing painted covers for magazines and many Conan novels that we mentioned in the episode 35 with Jeff. So I have to ask you guys, obviously he's got a reach here in some circles, but what does the name Frank Frazetta mean to you? Do you have any connection? to that name i think his art is some of the most iconic art around i think you know i think anyone could look at his art and say oh that's that's frank frazetta and i think what i know him most from is like kind of inspiring that star wars poster if i'm not mistaken did he paint a star wars poster or did he just inspire a star wars poster? no i, th- I think they were probably just doing it more in his style yeah because he was like the jotty apple seed of that painted fantasy look yeah i mean his work is is iconic it's really cool I mean, it's beautiful art. I mean, I just, I don't, I mean, I've seen some of these images. I'm just Googling it right now. But if you asked me back then, I would have not known who this person was at all. There's a couple of pieces that I'd really recognize that are like. Did they scare you, Michael? No, not necessarily that they scared me. I just, you know, I wasn't really into Conan and that kind of stuff back Mm. then. But there's there's a couple of cool Conan art here that I really like. Uh, Conan the Adventurer. It's kind of pretty neat stuff. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. So what they mention here, though, is that he did work on a film called Fire and Ice with Ralph Bakshi. He co-directed that film, did the character yes. designs. I actually own it on VHS. And it's pretty cool. I love rotoscoped animation. Ralph Bakshi is a crap storyteller and director, but I, I love when he does rotoscoping. It's just cool to me. But Frazetta, for me is the guy who inspired all the barbarian wizard art that was painted onto custom vans in the 70s. You know, like, just think if you've ever seen those back in the day, like, that there would just be these old vans, and there's this warrior on a rock, and there's lightning behind him, and there's this half-naked woman hanging onto his leg. You know, again, very much of that Star Wars pose, like you said, Stephen. Like, that was all Frazetta. Everybody just wanted to get Frazetta on their custom van. But speaking of those movies like Fire and Ice, Stephen, why don't you take us in? to Heroes in Motion. So, there's huge news this month, as Michael Keaton has officially bowed out of the role of Batman 
and Batman Forever. The Dark Knight will instead be played by Val Kilmer, who was cited for his recent portrayal of Jim Morrison in The Doors. It's almost impossible to overstate what a giant piece of news this was. Like, this was on the nightly news and yeah. the morning news. This broke the internet. Yeah, <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, this was mainstream news. This wasn't just like in Wizard. This was everywhere. It was pretty shocking that yeah. Keaton wasn't going to do it. I think like largely because we did not know what the movie was going to look like that Joel Schumacher was going to make. I mean, you know, Joel Schumacher at this point had made movies like The Client and Falling Down. So he was more of a serious movie director. And I don't think anyone could have anticipated like that day glow, colorful comic book, silly batman forever movie that we got which i don't think michael keaton would have looked right in well have you heard what's been going on on the internet right now so (laughs) that's very uh, vague (laughs) (laughs) i like to i like to be shrouded in mystery be Uh, more specific so yesterday was the 26th anniversary of batman forever and there's rumors going around that there's a different cut of batman forever called the schumacher cut which is super dark super like psychological and cerebral and the internet was a buzz with release the schumacher cut and it actually trended on twitter globally yesterday first of all we talked about this in the podcast already Second of all, I was one of those people retweeting, so you probably saw one of my retweets. I probably uh, did. Well, this happened yesterday. So. Yes. Yeah, this is something I was totally behind. You know, I, I could not have cared less about the Snyder Cut. And then I, you know, I mean, that, that thing is terrible. I'm pissing off a lot of people today, by the way. And I would love to see a Joel Schumacher cut. I've heard about this Joel Schumacher cut since AOL, like when I was in high school in the, in the late 90s. They've been wow. talking about this. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're supposedly... A darker cut with some crazy scenes. I don't know how much darker it's going to be. (laughs) I I don't think you could darken Tommy Lee Jones' performance in that movie. No, no, no. Uh, uh, But yeah, I mean, if another cut exists, I will be the first person to watch it on HBO Max. Agreed. I I know you will. (laughs) I'll go go to your house just to watch you watch it. (laughs) Yes, that that sounds amazing. So speaking of of Batman directors, uh, Tim Burton is not directing the next Bat film, but is reportedly in the running to direct the big budget Godzilla film scheduled for 1995, which we won't actually get until 1998 directed by Roland Emmerich. What a giant turd that movie was. Uh, I was there opening night for that Godzilla film. I got this special commemorative ticket stub holder that like had the whole texture of Godzilla scales, and it came with a flipping from the film. Like it was pretty cool. Mine did not have that. I think I got the uh, like the McDonald's you know supersized mug is what I got. (laughs) Taco Bell, yeah, that was a tie with Taco Bell. Was Taco Bell, yeah, Yeah. one of the only times I ever had Taco Bell in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of those movies where I was so excited for it. My friends were so excited for it. About ten minutes in, we're just like, oh crap, this is going to be terrible, isn't it? Like you just know right away this is a bad movie, Uh, and it didn't get any better. No, it didn't. But speaking of rumored films that didn't get made, it's reported that ElfQuest has been optioned to be made into an animated feature to be released in December 1995. Apparently, the elves of the North Pole got jealous and Santa did not deliver ElfQuest for the holidays. Oh, that's sad. You that know, been... Another movie that I would have liked to have seen that never got made. Do you guys ever watch uh, the movie Major League? Yes. Remember Major League 2? I love Major League 2. I saw it in theaters. I do, too. 
So the beginning of the movie, they're like showing what the players are doing. And yes. there's this like this whole clip of uh, Willie Mays Hayes mm-hmm. and and uh, what's his name? Je- the rest. Jesse the Body Ventura. And they made Black Hammer, White Lightning. Yep. I wanted that movie to be made so badly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Major League Two came out in 94. And I was like, oh, man, Black Hammer, White Lightning would be awesome. And it never got made. I that, that's to. where you went with this? The, the yeah. Major League Two? <laughs> I did yes. not I did not see that coming at all. With all the indie comic book movies that were almost made in the 90s, you went to Major League 2? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm in, a, I'm in a weird place right now. That's okay, okay. <laughs> so the feature closes out by mentioning that Jean-Claude Van Damme will be playing Guile in the Street Fighter live-action film, and Pierce Brosnan has officially taken over the role of James Bond for the upcoming GoldenEye after many years of waiting out his Remington Steel TV series contract. The rest of the feature is entirely taken up by an interview with Jim Lee about the Wildcats cartoon on CBS. Lee reveals the budget for most cartoons is two hundred to 250000 but his cartoon is budgeted at three hundred seventy-five to 400000 Recipe for disaster there. Apparently, when Fox got the schedule of when Wildcats would be airing, they moved X-Men to the same slot to try and scare CBS. Jim mentions that he chose Nelvana to produce Wildcats because they, they made Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which he repeatedly says look great but failed, which is also ends up being the case with this show as well. Uh, Wizard also tries to get an insight into why Rob Liefeld's Youngblood show went into development hell, to which Lee responds that he assumes it's because Rob was too involved in the show's decisions, whereas Jim technically has script approval, but due to his own time constraints, is leaving all the animation choices to Nelvana and the network. Uh, did you guys watch this cartoon? Apparently it's on the 2B app, according to the notes here. No, I've never seen it. Yeah, I tuned in back in the day. I did watch like one episode and I was like, wow, this animation is not very good. And then <laughs> I, I, I watched it again this week because I just wanted to refresh my memory. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, for Jim Lee being like the consummate artist that he is, the fact that they couldn't somehow come up with a better design style for all the money they were spending. Like the characters just, they, they just look really, I don't know how to put it. Like they're just so smooth. Like, you know, and he, we're so used to like the cross hatching and the shading and all that stuff. And it just, it just doesn't feel like Jim Lee characters at mm. all, you know? So yeah. So unfortunately it's, it's just not a very engaging cartoon either. Cause the characters are just kind of like, yeah, we all talk like this. Cause we're tough. Yeah, we're tough. You know? So no, it was not a big loss that that didn't uh, catch on. That's a bummer. Finally, there is a contest in this issue to promote the Damon Wayans superhero comedy blank man. The goal is to locate all six Blankman logos hidden throughout the issue. The grand prize winner receives a Sony Discman, a Blankman t-shirt, hat, poster, and pin. All the runners-up get a t-shirt and pin. Just a few hints on where to find them. Look for a kid with a pen and flag in the convention section, a Wizard News header, the Little Brutes and Babes tutorial, the Top 100 Comics list, and that's all we found. So there you go. You could still win that T-shirt. I would get. I would wear that T-shirt now. I would. I would wear that T-shirt. I still have my Sony Discman I got in 1994. <laughs> what? Wow. It's right here next to me. Jeez, your 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 house would be great props for our movie. Yeah, really. <laughs> Very far away. I know. Us. I wish I lived closer. I would totally be supplying you with so much stuff. You could be our prop master. Yeah. <laughs> there is also a Blank Man art contest where you have to draw a four to six panel comic strip featuring yourself in costume as Blank Man's new sidekick. What? 
Michael, why didn't you do this? I didn't have this issue to even know this existed. <laughs> I got I got it I got it two weeks ahead of time and I still didn't do it. <laughs> the grand prize winner will receive a twenty seven inch Sony TV, VCR, and Laserdisc player. That's awesome. A blank man autograph script, t shirt, hat, poster, and pin, plus your entry will see print in the pages of Wizard number forty. We gotta look out for that one, don't we? No. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> I was actually flipping through the pages real quick to see if they made good on that. I actually do not see the contest winner in here. So I, 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 because I, I've read issue 40 many times, and I'm going to have to really take a peek here and uh, see if that is the case, because I do not see anything related to Blank Man in this so, issue. I have to just say that you've read a particular issue many times. Issue 40 was one of my favorites back in the day, so oh, I read okay. it and reread yeah. it a lot. Yeah. You know, there's always something awful when a contest that you're anticipating just never pays off. Because I remember after Batman and Robin came out, there was this whole promotion where if you watch Saved by the Bell on like TBS, you could win a cameo in the next Batman movie directed by what? Joel Schumacher. Yeah, I, I think I can even f- like tell you what magazine issue lists this and you can find this and see if I'm right. And obviously they never made the fifth Batman movie directed by Joel Schumacher so that they never made good on that contest. Man, that's rough. Batman triumphant, as I'm going to call it. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah, it, it's it's not in here, guys. <laughs> okay. I, I think nobody entered. I'm almost willing to bet that was the so case. We, we could have won. We, we could have won easily. It was all I, you, Michael. Oh, man, I would have I would have been big time. Big time. <laughs> Your stick figures could have still won the day. They could have, seriously. Hey there, gift-giving geeks. We're just taking a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Fun.com. You know, Michael, Steven, and I buy each other presents all the time, and we're always looking for the most obscure and nerdy items to impress each other. Speaking for personal experience, Fun.com is a fantastic source for officially licensed pop culture clothing, toys from the likes of DC and Marvel. How about Ghostbusters or the Batman movies? Plus exclusive items you just won't find anywhere else. There's actually a killer Venom t-shirt in an Eric Larson style available only at Fun.com. It's super cool. And check this out. Just for being a listener to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics on the Retro Network, you can get 10% off your next order from Fun.com through August 7th, 2021. The 10% will automatically be subtracted from your shopping cart total there on the site. Just click the link found in the show notes for this episode and the discount will be automatically applied. I've done it. I bought my daughter a Wonder Woman t-shirt, a Star Wars themed storybook for my son, and uh, maybe a few items for myself as well. So treat yourself or your geeky friends and family to the gift of fun from fun.com. Let's dive into Gambit's deck of cards. Marvel is releasing a new set of cards, but with three different variations. The first will be a standard mass market set with silver foil enhancements. The second will be a gold foil stamping and only available at card and comic stores. And the third will be a Walmart exclusive with red foil stamping. 
So basically, you have to collect the set three times if you're a completist. And if you lived on Long Island in the 90s, there were no Walmarts, so you weren't getting those red ones on Long Island back then. That's true. I, I didn't even know what a Walmart was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, me, me neither. I didn't go to a Walmart till like 2005. There were no Walmarts in my area. Speaking of Walmart... The chain is also getting an exclusive DC Comics card set for younger collectors called DC Stars that is meant to get them hooked in on the hobby. Gotta get that card fixed at that Walmart. I gotta get that DC Comics card, baby. Get it. I don't know. Freaking babbling. Oh, my God. I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> okay, the next thing, I gotta preface this by saying I had a conversation with Joe the other day with regards to the Rocketeer versus the Shadow, and Joe said that the Shadow is better than the Rocketeer. Yeah, he did. And he said the Phantom was better than the Rocketeer, and I and I almost told him I'm gonna end 35 years of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, you're crazy. So, the Shadow Movie Card set from Tops contains not only scenes from the film, but also illustrated cards with art by modern Dark Horse comics artists and a special chase card set by Jim Steranko. Adam has obviously a nearly complete set who would be surprised by this no one so if you have any of the cards laying around let him know because he'll be happy to be a completist and finalize his shadow collection of cards i'm sure yeah you want a sony disc man i got it right over here i'll trade you for some shadow cards who are you kidding <laughs> you're not parting with that sony disc no man. way no way it only skips when i breathe on it don't worry it's still <laughs> It's still good. It's still good. The Valiant file card set is being released with special filing cabinet box where each card is held in a plastic sleeve that hangs in a file folder to add more realism to the theme of being the secret files of the Harbinger Foundation or <sighs> a huge waste of time and money. <laughs> a lot of effort for something that ultimately only a small handful of collectors gave a about at all. <laughs> We're going to bleep you anyway, like you cussed. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't curse. I'm trying. <laughs> I have made a real conscious effort to not swear as best I can. I'm trying. After, after you know, the last episode, my goodness, you're going to need to ride that swear button. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he bought me about six months of curses right there. <laughs> he did, and that's good. That was very nice of him. Yes. Stephen Sadak, you've made an indelible mark on the Wizards podcast. It was great just hearing all the, like, the bleeps and stuff. I was like, yes, this guy heated. <laughs> this is some good stuff. It's the real world comics podcast. <laughs> Apparently, the Marvel Flare series contained Spider-Man and Venom cards featuring Todd McFarlane artwork, which are the most sought-after cards in the series. Meanwhile, Marvel's old home, Skybox, announces that they are going to be the exclusive producer of trading cards for Rob Liefeld's Extreme Studios Comics and Characters. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Great. This guy, he must have given them 50 grand. Like, 
Put my name on every page of this issue. Put me above Peter David in the Hulk thing. I don't care. Aggressive. It's called it's called aggressive promotion. I guess so. As a bit of follow-up, Wizard News features collectible phone cards, which were mentioned a few issues back. I remember these, yes. We, were, we did talk about this. I do remember this particular conversation we had. Hey, how about it? Look at that. George Perez and Bart Sears are providing exclusive art for the phone cards featuring characters from a comic called The Dark, which no one has ever heard of, especially not me. Plus, look for phone cards featuring Jay Lee's Hellshock. Oh, boy. And characters from the new Techno Comics line. What is Techno Comics? Oh, you're going to find out. It's not very far down. Although it may actually be covered while you're gone, so you can just count your blessings on that one. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. You're you're welcome, Michael. I guess so. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen, for keeping me from from learning anything about Techno Comics. (laughs) Wonderful. Finally, Magic the Gathering is highlighted in a sidebar as one of the hottest games in years. And it's still crazy because there are still comic book shops that do Magic the Gathering tournaments. And Wizard provides a basic explanation of gameplay involving mana and specialty cards. The final paragraph states, Many rational people are uncomfortable with any game featuring the use of magic. While the game themselves may be harmless, they may unintentionally spark an interest in the occult on the part of their players. What? An interest that I have not found edifying. Magic the Gathering is just a game. A really good game. So weird, that statement at the end. I don't know, because the whole thing they're talking about, this is how you play it, it's super hot. It's just like, it may spark an interest in the occult. It's not edifying. What? Did your teacher write that? Your high school principal wrote about Magic the Gathering cards? So bizarre. He took out like a PSAT exam and like looked up the, the questions and like, the vocabulary <laughs> I'll use that word today. That feels but right. Do you guys remember when magic became a big thing at your local comic book shop? Oh, oh yeah. It was Immediately. It was like lightning in a bottle for, mm-hmm. yeah. for some reason. And it never let go. Like Michael said, no. I, mean, it could, I, I was literally, you know, again, I don't get to the comic shops that often, but I went this last week and I was in there. There was this really creepy, weird guy talking to the shop owners like, yeah, you know, I heard about this card that's only available in the UK and the shop owners like, yeah that goes for about five thousand online and he's like yeah there's also this other card i really wanted but i can't afford it yeah that one goes for like three thirty five hundred and i'm just like why in the world like i mean it's big business still magic the gathering cards crazy i I was in the comic book shop about two weeks ago and a guy came in with his entire book of magic the gathering cards and the shop owner looked through it and picked out like three of them that were high value and i think he got like a couple grand for them and it was, it was not at fourth world it was not at bailey's it was another comic shop that i went into and i was like i'm just sitting there and i'm like i gotta sit back and watch this or pretending i'm reading and i'm like holy crap it's <laughs> really happening go mug this guy <laughs> really happening i was like okay and he's like i got some comics too and he goes and the guy and the owner goes if they're not from the 70s i don't want to see them <laughs> he's like <laughs> he's like you don't want my 90s image comics he's like no <laughs> Pass him over here, guy. You should have gotten his number, Michael. Come on. No. No. I'm not 
going to take my money and set it on fire. Oh, boy. So let me ask you guys, have you either ever been involved in any Magic the Gathering stuff? Like, I never liked Dungeons and Dragons. I never played it. And Magic the Gathering always felt like an extension of that to me. And I just never got into it. Yeah, it's weird. Because I feel like we were too young for Dungeons and Dragons and then too old for Magic. Like, we were in that weird place. Because once Magic came out, I remember seeing those kids and being like, oh, that's I was already nerdy. I clearly loved all these nerdy things, but I was like, I think that's maybe a bridge too far for me. I don't know if yeah. I can get into this whole card playing thing. Yeah, like we missed the boat on the Magic the Gathering and the Pokemon phenomenon. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had friends in junior high that were trying to get me to play Magic the Gathering, and I just I couldn't comprehend it. And yeah. so I just said no. Like I remember being sat down in one of the parks, and my friend just took like, come over to this picnic table. We're gonna teach you how to play. And I'm like, nope, don't get it. And my brother is like super the opposite like he loves every strategy game he was deep into dungeons and dragons in high school and like so he he was definitely that era because he went to high school you know in the in the 70 late 70s and 80s my brother is quite a bit older than me so yeah so like i definitely was around it a lot and uh, that whole world but it did not unintentionally or intentionally spark an interest in the occult <laughs> all, all we all we had was the short-lived pogs unfortunately yes oh i love my pogs Still got those right next to me, too, right here. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? The 90s will never die at my house. Progress peaked in 1996 for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else has been just one big blip of time. <laughs> but, you know, Magic the Gathering got plenty of hype, so I think it's time that we get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Kind of short this time around. It's short because Rob Liefeld took up night <laughs> Oh, it's true. It's true. But the Market Watch section features a question from a reader about Spawn number 19 and 20, stating that he went to go buy them, but they were never published. A wizard confirms that Todd was running behind, so he just skipped those issues and published 21 when it was ready. Todd claims he will publish issues 19 and 20 when he gets around to it, <laughs> which is wild. And one of our listeners, Lee, I know you were just to actually, as we were getting the show started, you were mentioning that on Twitter. So here is your shout out because he was saying, yeah, I remember that Todd just happened to not publish those issues that eventually did. So yeah, it's kind of a crazy world he was living in when even Todd because you know Todd was pretty much on time but it just sounded like he didn't get that done maybe it was Bart Sears fault somehow uh, but during mini episode 35.5 you might recall I reported that Jim Lee was in the number three spot behind Stephen Platt in the top 10 hottest artists lists. And as of issue 37, Jim Lee is not on the list at all. I don't know what he did to anger wow. Wizard, but he is gone. Wow. And it, it, it continues for a few issues. So I like, like, I think literally maybe he just wasn't producing enough. I don't know. But Jim Lee is gone. Crazy. As we get to our final count here in this issue, Jim Lee had six mentions. Todd, get ready for it, guys. Coming back in a big way, 14 mentions. Oh, snap. Wow. Rob Liefeld. 37 mentions. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings our total finally 
Todd is back in the game. Jim Lee, 229 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 223. Not far behind now. This is a close race. Yep. But we got some more of these image guys to talk about. So, Steven, why don't you take us into... Azriel's Action Figure Fury. So the toying around feature starts off with the announcement that Rob Liefeld is licensing Bad Rock and Chapel to McFarlane's Todd toys to be made into action figures. He decided to go with Todd after the sculpts of all the other toy companies failed to impress him. Okay. Cool. I, I, I vaguely remember those toys, and they did, did look pretty cool, so I'll give them that. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers toys are reported to be impossible to find since last Christmas, even with toy manufacturer Bandai running their 15 factories 24 hours a day. There is still an eight-week delay between shipments arriving to stores across the country. Five-and-a-quarter-inch figures with flip-action transforming heads are being introduced soon. Plus, we are given the news that the Green Ranger will leave the show in favor of the mysterious White Ranger. For those who don't know, the same actor just got a costume change. Yeah. Uh, which was not the case in, like, the original show, right? That was an American you No, know, well, they, they, they just took footage from a different show. And okay. that's why now there was going to be a White Ranger, because there were only so many episodes of the original series. Got <laughs> so. it, got it. Uh, did you guys experience this toy shortage firsthand? Did you have any Power Rangers toys? I like the show, but I wasn't investing my time or money in, in the action figures, personally. I, I had the Flippy Head Green Ranger. A few of my friends had the Red Ranger flippy head one, yeah. I, I remember that. I did not. I, I had the flippy head Black Ranger, because Zach was always my guy. But I didn't have the big figures, which the original ones that came out that they're talking about here that are impossible to find. But I 100% remember going to the mall, where there were these guys set up with all the toys, and there were just lines, like, around their little cart at the mall. And they were charging, you know, 50, 100 bucks for these figures, because you just... Yeah, yeah, you couldn't find them on shelves, and every kid wanted a Power Rangers toy. I remember not even asking my parents, because I'm like, I want them, but I'm, I'm not going to blow my Christmas and birthday money on a Red Ranger, you know? But luckily, about a year and a half ago, at a antique store, I found the original five Rangers, those large figures, complete with their guns and everything, and they were super cheap, and I was so excited. The only bummer part was that the owner said, oh yeah, somebody was in here the other day, they just bought the green ranger and the white ranger though and i was like oh man i could have like a full full set how much were they they were literally only like eight bucks a piece what? which is like a steal wow. and i have them right here next to me on my little display uh, shelf here so i love them they're fantastic a anything that's mentioned in this issue guys i got it right here <laughs> <laughs> so so you got that foam rubber bad rock uh, head <laughs> it's in the closet <laughs> Okay, so it was rumored that both Kenner and Playmates had the license to produce new Star Wars figures. So Kenner was contacted and said only that they would not be released in 1994, while the Playmates rep basically said, I wish, when asked if they had the Star Wars license. These toys were awesome. I had a, I had so many of these toys in high school. They were lining my bookshelf. Uh, they were amazing. Really cool toys. I only had one. I, I didn't care about Star Wars that much, just nostalgic for the, the original Kenner figures, but when they started doing the new ones, I wasn't on board. But my friend bought me the Rancor Keeper mm. and said, this is you. <laughs> Jeez. 
this fat shirtless guy because at the time i was in a a sports fans group because all my friends were into sports we would go to our high school football games and paint our faces in the school colors and we we had costumes and we did all these cheers because our cheerleaders sucked and so we would go and like rally up the crowd and my big moment is if everybody got loud enough i would rip off my shirt reveal my giant fat body and uh, and slap my belly i wish i went to your high school because i could have never done that in my school district i would have been beaten to a pulp (laughs) like it would have never happened no way like i would have been humiliated for the rest of my life i would have had to move towns or something like that oh my god (laughs) well we got to the point where we actually got to run out on the field in front of the team holding the 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 flag of our school and and raising it and shaking around so we got official recognition by the end we were in the yearbook like we were the guys that are I would have I would have been strapped to the goalpost and <laughs> and and set on fire by my by my peers. Yeah, M- Michael would have been hospitalized for quite a while if he did that in his oh, town. Oh we're, my we're, god, we were ridiculed for just walking down the hallway. Like I remember just like walking down the hallway and someone being like, "Hey, you walk stupid." It's like, thanks, I'm just walking. Leave me alone. Yeah, I I, I would be walking down the hallway. They grab my backpack and throw and spin me around and throw me into the lockers. So that yeah. was just. <laughs> that was what Maybe happened. It was it was hard going until high school, but somehow uh, I was able to make it work. So, Michael, do you remember what would happen if you got a haircut, or if you oh. didn't get a haircut? Oh my God, forget it! And, and if you got a haircut that was slightly askew, or like, oh man, I was tortured. You know, even though you weren't allowed to wear hats in school, if I got a haircut and like I knew it was going to be something that was going to be a problem, I would quickly throw on a hat in the hallway and run from class to class just so I would avoid being seen in the hallways and get my butt kicked. Yeah, well, we, we've we've settled that Long Island is a hell on earth and not yeah. a place for reasonable human beings. So yeah, let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> uh, Malibu Comics announces that Galoob has obtained a license to create action figures based on their Ultraverse comics. It's not announced which characters are getting the toy treatment, but Prime, Mantra, and Rune are speculated as being frontrunners. Okay, cool. We started on Todd and we'll end on Todd. McFarlane's Ego column this month focuses on a step-by-step breakdown of how action figures are made. At one point, Todd highlights the fact that no female action figures are sexy, and that's why they don't sell. He is making an Angela figure that will be sexy and predicts, I think we will sell a ton of Angelas. <laughs> Todd informs potential collectors that they that he can only make so many figures at a time and must fairly distribute them to the stores that place orders. So you might have to hit up a chain store, a comic store, and toy store to get the whole set. Speaking of this hair thing, I, I gotta go back to this for a second. <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity to uh, finally kick in my going off theme song for when we go off topic and talk about Long Island. Unctuous, rambunctious, fantastically infunctious, nickel beers and hockey games, the chicken wings are scrumptious, you need to change the tire when the rubber gets soft, we don't shirk responsibilities, no, that's, that's why we're going off! These are the things we love. You sparked something in me there. <laughs> so, do you remember in the 90s, there was this, like, hairstyle, like, they called it the beach cut or the bowl cut. We had, like, one part on one side and your hair went the other direction. So I had that most of my childhood. And then, when I was probably in about fifth or sixth grade, 
I wanted to shave one side of it and just have the hair flopped over. This was before it was cool. I did it way ahead, maybe about like a year ahead of anybody else. And people used to grab me by the hair and throw me into a locker. And then a year later, when I had moved on from that haircut from being made fun of so much, every guy I knew had that haircut. And I was like, what? (laughs) You all beat the crap out of me for a year, and now you all have it? I was, and I just like started shaving my head in like a crew cut or like a flat top at that point. So I was like, I can't have hair because they're gonna throw me into a locker by my hair. I'm sorry that the haircut triggered so much. Oh yeah, but but for some reason deep down, I I knew that it would because I remember (laughs) either someone would say, "Oh, you gotta get a haircut. Look at your hair," or they would say, "Oh, about time you got a haircut." Like Mm. you couldn't win if you had a haircut or didn't have a haircut. People were just waiting for any reason to just pounce on you and insult yeah. you. And then I, I used to be told all the time that I, because I wore a hat all the time. Oh, you're gonna lose your hair because you, because you wore a hat all the time. I'm wearing a hat because you're making fun of my hair. And now, 30 years later, I have no hair. So you won. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Got that off my chest. Feeling good. Feeling great. 10:30 on the East Coast. All right. Okay. And with that. Michael, what do we have? We're going to go into a little Punisher's Price Guide. So, the Comic Watch section highlights Death Mate Black as a possible hot book because it features the first appearance of Gen 13, which is now in the number one spot on the top 10 hottest comics list. Wizard acknowledges that Deathmate as a whole sucked big time, but thinks that once people realize Gen 13 debuted in this book, it will lose its layer of dust. That was probably the only good thing about that Deathmate book was was that Gen 13 appeared, and I thought that was pretty cool myself when I read it. In September of 1994, the standard Deathmate Black was valued in the Wizard Price Guide as $5.50, while the Gold Edition was listed at $35. As of June 2021, on eBay, an ungraded copy of Deathmate Black sold for a whopping 99 cents with $5.95 shipping. <laughs> wow. Wild. You should just put the five ninety five into your gas tank and drive to the corner bin at your local comic store. Seriously. While the gold edition sold for between $15 and $38. So... Not that it's a any real surprise here, but Deathmate Black, you're still a total burnout, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting surly. We talked about the hair, and now... You broke I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is my last episode before hiatus, and, and I broke Michael by asking about haircuts in high school. Oh, well, speaking of guys with crazy haircuts, it's time for Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go Go. How bizarre!
So, the first casualty of a claim purchasing Valiant Comics, which was reported on recently, is the news that Valiant Vision, that 3D process, they are discontinuing that for all future Valiant Comics. Truth be told, this is the result of a contract dispute with the manufacturer of the plastic film used to make the special glasses needed to activate the 3D effect. So, farewell, Valiant Vision. You were the one gimmick that deserved our respect. As far as gimmicks that did make it to the newsstands, Marvel released all their major Spider-Man and X-Men titles this month with a run-of-the-mill kind of shiny, mildly holographic cover. It's not impressive. They were just getting lazy at this point, I feel like. (laughs) Finally, as if Rob Liefeld hasn't gotten enough coverage this issue, Wizard includes an order form for a Dooms 4 half comic. If you'll recall, this is the concept Rob was developing for Steven Spielberg to make a movie out of, which never happened. I just added a copy to the archives courtesy of our listener and past guest Jody Yurden. So thank you, Jody. Super awesome. And the comics pages themselves are just the, the bad guy. His name is uh, Cyber Idol. That's S-Y-B-E-R. Cyber Idol. Monologuing to himself about how, quote, humanity will fall and give way to the age of the Cyber Sapien. And then they're like action poses of the heroes with his word boxes. Uh, he- here's what I'll tell you about this as I read through this. So first off, the Dooms 4 comic series they reveal in the in the interview in the back is a sequel to the movie, which hasn't been released because they are not allowed to use any of the story points from the movie script. And Liefeld just can't wait. He just, he's got to get the word out about Dooms 4. And Liefeld is adamant that although the artist, who is not Liefeld on this book, is invoking a Kirby style, the name has a four in it, the team is made up of four people, including a character named Grimm, an mm. angst-ridden rock creature who isn't the Grim guy, a fire shooting character, the bad corporation is called Doom, and it's more of a sci-fi story than a straight superhero adventure. This is definitely not a Fantastic Four homage. Okay? (laughs) Maybe Roger Corman can make the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, as I read through what he had planned, because he kind of breaks down what the basic story is, although he cannot reveal the origin of these characters. He's so adamant. He's like, it cannot be told. But the unique part of the story, I thought, was a romance between this female fire slinger named Burn and this kitty pride-like phasing hero called Slider. But what's different is Slider is stuck in his phasing mode and is immaterial when Burn is afraid to touch anyone because they would be burned to a crisp. So Slider thinks he could pull himself together into becoming just a barely physical being as they start developing feelings for each other, and he'll probably be okay if he's only slightly corporeal when they make out. So, but, but that actually did happen to Kitty Pride, though. Oh yeah, there was a time I forget when. This is it's a little bit after this, but actually she got stuck like in a rocket trying to reprogram it and and like redirected into outer space and was lost in space for a little while because she was stuck half phased inside of some like rocket or something like that. Well, see, but this is a guy, Michael. So it's not the same thing. This character is a man who oh, phases. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure, yeah. It's not the same thing. Totally, yeah. <laughs> so if any of you are fans of Dooms 4 out there, if you started collecting the regular series, which was a 
sequel to the movie that was never made, you gotta tell us about it on social media, okay? <laughs> Reach out to us. We want to hear about your thoughts on Dooms 4. But with that, I mean, we are done. That is it for episode 37 of Wizards. Steven, we are gonna miss you. Best of luck with the movie. I mean, the good news is we'll still be able to catch you on an upcoming episode of 90s Super Cinema. We are covering uh, a very special movie to you. You want to tell us what it was? It is called The Death of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, it was one that I was pushing for for a while, and we finally got to talk about it, and it was quite a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a, a, a good trip down memory lane. It's a it's a unique movie. I'll give it that. Yeah, so and if you uh, if you want to hear it sooner than later, make sure you're subscribed. You know, we just found out today we have 100 episodes in our feed between many episodes and interviews and bonus episodes, all these great things. So it's only going to keep growing. So if you're not subscribed on your favorite platform, you're listening episode to episode, just get on it, man, and tell your friends. And a big shout out to a lot of our uh, comics pros that are doing their part. Jimmy Palmiotti has retweeted us several times, and we appreciate that. New people find us every day, and among others. So thank you for spreading the word. And in the meantime, Michael, tell us what they're, where they can get in touch with us on social media. So if you're on the Twitters, you can check us out at Wizards Comics. If you are on Instagram, you can go to Wizards underscore comics. You can also find us on our YouTube channel, Wizards Podcast or Wizards Guide to Comics, whichever you want to search for will come up. We've got a lot of cool stuff. Indeed. So until next time, Steven, do you want to send us out with our famous sign-off? Famous. It's yes, like, I do. This we've is, trademarked this is a, it. This is an honor. Until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.